I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2. First Timothy 2. This morning we're going to be um, looking at verses 4 through to 7, but I'm going to read from verse 1 just for the sake of context so you can see the flow of argument that Paul makes. So Paul says this, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let me pray for us. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, Grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you were to ask... Um, random people on the street, why we as humans ought to have a concern for all of humanity. I wonder how they might answer that question. I wonder how they would explain why we ought to be concerned about the circumstances of people in other places in the world. In other words, why should we as individual humans have a global concern for the world. Now, most people would think it absurd to suggest otherwise. But why? Now, of course, some might answer with things like, uh, because of our shared humanity, our, our common humanity. But what does that even mean? What do we mean by our common or shared humanity? We don't see the animal kingdom going out of its way to care for one another. It's not like elephants in India are deeply concerned about the poaching of elephants in Africa. Now, I know that's a silly illustration, but elephants have a commonality in what it means to be an elephant. And yet that doesn't make them feel morally obligated to care for one another, especially in times of tragedy. So why do we as humans feel a moral responsibility when other humans face some kind of tragedy? Why do we feel obligated in some capacity to help? Why do world leaders call upon their nations to help a specific area of the world that has just been devastated, let's say, by a tsunami or war? Now, there may be many propositions by different worldviews, religions, philosophies to answer that question. 
But I truly believe that only Christianity can give a legitimate, reliable answer to such a question, one that I actually think makes sense. And the answer is quite simple. Because there is one God who created us. And he created us distinct from the animal kingdom by making us in his image and likeness. And this truth, whether people realize it or not, this is what creates in them a moral pull to help when tragedy strikes human beings in another part of the world. The oneness of God, the fact that we all share the same creator and that we have dignity and intrinsic value because we've been made in his image and likeness morally obligates us to have a global concern. Not only that, but Paul will argue here in this chapter that it's not only one God, but it's also that there is one Savior for the human race. That's precisely his reasoning here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The one God and the one Savior is the foundation for Paul's exhortation for why Christians should have a global concern. Now, we saw last week that Paul in chapter 2 is primarily concerned about proper orderly worship. He's concerned about how we worship and what we do in our worship. And last week we saw that, first of all, we should be devoted to prayer. Specifically, praying for all people and those in authority over us. And Paul roots this duty, this obligation in the truth that God has a universal concern. As he says in verses 3 to 4, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So our worship of God in prayer should take on a global emphasis because the God we worship has a global concern. He wills that all the peoples of the world would come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in verses 5 to 7, Paul continues to actually build on that argument. He continues to give reasons for why our prayers should have a global concern, and he explains the reasoning for why God desires all people to be saved. And there are two fundamental reasons. There is one God, and there is one mediator. As the text says, for there is one God, verse 5, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, the universality of the gospel rests upon this double foundation. There is one God, and there is one mediator. So first, let's look at this one God. Now, you have to see the logical argument that Paul's making here. The concern of God for all people is rooted in the theological claim that there is but one God. Which makes sense. If there were many gods, it would make logical sense that these many gods would be concerned for portions of the human population. Bound by geographical and ethnic boundaries. The idea of tribal gods. This was, in fact, the thinking in the ancient world. There were many gods, and they were gods of different peoples and different groups and different geological locations, and they were basically having turf wars, so to speak. 
You see this very clearly in the Exodus story. God didn't just deliver Israel from Egypt, but he declared war on the so-called Egyptian gods, demonstrating that they were in fact not gods. And that the God of Israel is in fact the God of creation and the God of all. Now, if there is but one God who is the creator of all, then it makes absolute sense that he would have a global concern for his creation. He would have a global concern for those he has made in his image and likeness. And so the claim that there is one God is actually the driving force for why God desires all people to be saved and why we as followers of this one and only God should have a concern for all the nations. This is precisely what Calvin argued when he said this, whatever diversity might at that time exist among men, because many ranks and many nations were strangers to faith, Paul brings to the remembrance of the believers the unity of God that they may know that they are connected with all because there is one God of all. That they may know that they who are under the power of the same God are not excluded forever from the hope of salvation. You see, in Paul's day, though there were people who were atheistic, the fact is, the majority of people you would have encountered in the Greco-Roman world uh, were polytheists. They believed in a diversity of so-called gods and deities. And so one of the challenges that the early church faced was that of demonstrating to the pagan world that there was and is actually only one God who is the creator of all and by whom we live and move and have our being. This is precisely what Paul did when he was preaching to the Athenians. He began by arguing that there is, in fact, only one God who is the creator of all. He says this in Acts 17, to 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. They worshipped so many gods that they just wanted to make sure they didn't miss the God they didn't know about. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind, all mankind, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see Paul's argument? This one God 
who gives life to all men. So you have the singularity of God, but you have this universal focus in his message to the Athenians. This one God commands all people everywhere to repent. See, this is the claim of Christianity. And this claim is one of the motivating factors for why we have a global concern, particularly for the salvation of mankind. And this is not only a New Testament theme, this is also dispersed throughout the entire Old Testament. Isaiah 45, 20 to 22, listen to these words. This is God speaking. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden aisles and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And then there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And then he says this, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The call to the ends of the earth to turn and be saved is rooted in the truth that there is one God, for I am God and there is no other. This is the claim of the Christian faith. There is but one God who is the creator and sustainer of all the world, who gives life to all mankind and is sovereign over all of creation and all of human history. Now, in some ways, we are still living in a society that affirms polytheism in the sense that people don't want to remotely suggest the God you claim to worship is a false God. Because we live in a society that believes no one's beliefs can be wrong. What's true for you is true for you. And what works for you works for you. And what's true for me is true for me. And, and what works for me is what works for me. And therefore, it's utterly offensive to suggest that another human being is wrong in what they claim to worship. It's utterly offensive to suggest that people do not have the knowledge of the truth. Yet that's precisely what Paul tells us. So in that sense, we still live in a polytheistic society. I would actually suggest that polytheism is actually on the rise in our culture, but in a very distinct way. People aren't returning to belief in the pagan gods of Roman and Greek, Roman, Roman Greece and, and establishing statues, but, but more and more people talk about their own personal belief in their God that is really just an extension of their imagination. I believe in God. I like to think of him like this. In other words, they project some kind of vision of what they want God to be like, and they then believe that's who God is. Now you could say it's, we could call it, it's the gods of the individual imagination. And you'll quickly discover that this God is really just a God who conforms and affirms their already perceived ideas about who they are and what life is. It's a God shaped and fashioned by their own imagination. But if you have hundreds of millions of people believing this kind of thinking, then how many gods do you have? Hundreds of millions of gods 
of people's imagination. And as Christians, followers of Jesus, we reject such illogical claims and beliefs. We proclaim without hesitation that the God of your imagination is not God, but the God who gave you your imagination is God. And this true and living God desires that you come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, the other challenge we face, of course, is that most people don't argue for a multitude of deities. Rather, more and more people argue that there is no God whatsoever. The rise of secularism and materialism deafens and numbs people to spiritual things. More and more people, even if they aren't outright atheists, see the possibility of God as almost irrelevant. But as Christians, we know that to not be the case. In fact, I would argue that the need for God is more important now than ever before. But as Christians, we can't compromise on this belief. This is partly what it means to be a Christian. We believe in one God who is Lord over all. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe that. In fact, this belief informs all that we do. It informs how we worship, why we worship, who we worship. We must, before the watching world, continue to proclaim that there is one God alone of which creation points to and of which the Holy Scriptures affirm. And here's why. Because not only do we believe it's the truth, but this God alone is the one who has the power to bring salvation to mankind. He alone is the God who saves, and therefore the world needs to know of this God. And so we see here that God desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth because there is only one God. Also, we're told here that not only is there only one God, but there is also only one mediator. Now, if you think the claim, only one God, is offensive to our culture, the notion of only one mediator or savior is probably even more offensive. Yet Paul makes clear the reason God desires all people to be saved, the reason he has a global concern, and the reason we have a concern for all people is because there is not only just one God, but one mediator. And who is he mediating between? Well, there is one mediator between God and man. And it's the man, Christ Jesus. Now, a few things we need to understand from this statement. The first is this. Mediation implies conflict between two parties. The reason why someone gets a mediator is because they need a third party to help bring about some kind of agreement slash reconciliation. So the fact that Paul states there's one mediator between God and men implies there is conflict between God and the human race. Even though this God desires all people to be saved, there is conflict between God and the human race. And this conflict the scriptures describe as humanity's rebellion against God. We have defied, disregarded, disobeyed, turned aside from God and his ways. We have, as Paul says in Romans 1.18, suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness. God desires that we come to a knowledge of the truth, but in our sin we have suppressed the truth. 
We have not honored God as God or given thanks to God as we should, as Paul says, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is why Paul can say in regards to the human race, there is no one righteous, no one, not one. And because of this, there is conflict with God. You see, friend, if you're here and not a follower of Jesus, the fundamental problem in your life is that you are at enmity with your maker. And that's why you need a mediator. Which leads to the second thing we need to understand, and that is who this mediator is. The mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. The one mediator between all the human race and God is the man, Jesus Christ. Paul here emphasizes the humanity of Jesus while not rejecting the divinity of Jesus. You see, Paul clearly taught that Jesus was truly the divine as the Son of God. He begins this letter with Jesus being bracketed with the Father as the single source of grace, mercy, and peace. He also says that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, implying his preexistence. Paul believed and taught, and the church has always taught throughout its existence, the two natures of Christ. He is both truly God and truly man. As the Athanasian Creed states, now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned to flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. This is why we call Jesus the God-man, for he is both truly God and truly man. But here, Paul emphasizes the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we need to ask why. Why does he emphasize the man? The man, Christ Jesus. Well, simply put, an intermediary must be able to represent both parties in the conflict. He needs to be able to understand where both are coming from, so to speak. And as the God-man, he is able to do just that. He knows and understands what it means to be human, yet without sin. And of course, he knows what it means to be God. But the emphasis is on the man, the humanity, because the intermediary work that he does is on behalf of man, because God doesn't need a mediator. It's humanity that needs a mediator because of sin, which leads to the third thing we need to understand. We need to understand the way in which he mediates. How does Jesus mediate? How is he actually the mediator? What does he do in his mediation? Well, usually when you have a mediator, the mediator is trying to help either side come to an agreement that's usually rooted in some kind of compromise on the part of both parties. But that's not remotely how Jesus mediates. And here's why. Because in the case of God and man, there is no compromise on the part of God. 
God is in the right, man is always in the wrong. As Bray puts it, salvation is not a compromise between two essentially equal parties, but the triumph of the superior one over the other. We don't have legitimate grounds against God. We have illegitimate grounds, whereas God has legitimate grounds against us. So how is Jesus actually our mediator? Does he, does he go before God and, and try to convince his father that we're not as bad as we may look? Lord, Father, every so often the human race does get a few things right, so will you just cut them a little slack? No, he doesn't do that. The answer to the question, how does Jesus mediate on our behalf, lies in verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is the idea of redemption. To ransom is to purchase one's freedom, to deliver someone from slavery. This is the imagery that Paul uses to describe what Jesus has done as our mediator. We were enslaved to sin and death, and Jesus paid our ransom, but not with money. How? Well, the first three words in verse 6 give us the answer. Who gave himself. Who gave himself. The ransom price for sin is death. For the wages of sin is death, and Christ paid our ransom with his blood. He was that lamb that we read in Leviticus 16. His blood was shed for the sins of the people. The human race was under God's condemnation and Jesus Christ on behalf of the human race bore that condemnation in our place. This is how he mediates on our behalf. Think about it this way. Why does mediation happen in the first place? Well, as I already alluded to, because there's usually offense and conflict between two parties. And the mediator strives to reconcile these two parties in regards to their differences. But Christ as our mediator is radically different. There are not two aggrieved parties. There is only one aggrieved. God has not wronged us. We have wronged him. But Jesus in his mediatorial work eradicates the wrong that we've done by killing it on the cross so that there is no longer any offense before God. We can and are now reconciled to our Heavenly Father. See, the very thing that separated us or brought conflict between us and God has been dealt with by Jesus ransoming us and dying for our sins. In his death, he has put to death the offense, and the conflict. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5 that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Augustine articulates this. How are we reconciled unless what separates us and him is broken? For he says through the prophet, the Lord's ear is not dull that it cannot hear, but your sins separate you and your God. Therefore, because we are not reconciled, unless what is in the middle has been removed and what should be in the middle has been put there, for there is a separating middle. But over against it is a reconciling mediator. 
The separating middle is sin. The reconciling mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in order that the separating wall, which is sin, may be taken away, that mediator has come, and the priest himself has become the sacrifice. Think about this. When Jesus stands before the Father to mediate on my behalf, he doesn't remotely say, Lord, Peter's not perfect. He makes mistakes, but he's made some progress over the years, and and I hope you can accept him despite some of those ongoing flaws, which are many. That's not what he does. It's more like this. Father, I know that Peter has sinned against you and is worthy of a just condemnation, but look upon me, your son, and see that I have eradicated Peter's sin by nailing it to the cross. The very thing that created conflict is no more because I have removed it once and for all by my own sacrifice. And Father, this was your plan and goodwill, so accept my sacrifice on Peter's behalf. And God Almighty, our Heavenly Father, rejoices to accept the sacrifice of His Son. This is how Jesus mediates on our behalf, by giving Himself as a ransom for all. And this leads to the final thing we need to see in regards to Jesus as the mediator. The exclusivity of Jesus as mediator. Because of Jesus' ransoming work, Paul articulates that he alone is the one mediator between God and men. Just as there is only one God, so there is only one mediator by which humans can be saved, and he is the man, Christ Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, salvation, redemption, glorification can only be had through Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. That's the definite article. I am the way. It doesn't say I'm a way. I'm one of the possibilities. No, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth is not some idea. Truth is a person. I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says this, no one, no one, that's important, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. You remember when Peter and John are brought before the Jewish council for a miracle that they had performed on the Sabbath? And they were asked by what power or whose name they had done the miracle And Peter responded and said this in Acts 4, 8-12, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Listen to this. And there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You will not find salvation anywhere except in Jesus Christ alone. You see, here in this passage, we see both the inclusivity and the exclusivity of Christianity. 
The emphasis in this passage is for all people. Pray for all people. God wills, desires that all people to be saved. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all people. Christianity is extremely inclusive. This room captures that. People of different ages, different sexes, different social classes, different ethnicities, different intellectual abilities. Christianity is fundamentally universal in its scope. It has a global focus. As we saw last week, Jesus ransomed people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But it's also unbelievably exclusive. Because it claims that only in Jesus and the God of Christianity can salvation be known. There is no other name. It means there is no salvation in Hinduism. It means there is no salvation in Buddhism. It means there is no salvation in New Age practices. It means there is no salvation in Islam. There is no salvation in any political thought, communism, whatever it may be. There is no salvation in native spirituality. And there is no salvation found in your own goodness. Jesus alone is the one who has the power to save human beings. And therefore, as the mediator, he says to you, come, believe, trust me, follow me, for I am on your side. I gave my life as a ransom for all. But come, receive and believe. See, this is why Paul calls us to have a universal concern and why God desires all people to be saved. Because he alone is God. And Christ alone is the mediator between God and men. Now, before I end, there are a few more things we need to see in this passage. After Paul says that Jesus is the mediator and he gave himself as a ransom for all, he then states, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, this is actually a, a very difficult phrase to understand, but the majority of commentators suggest that what's being conveyed here is that this testimony pertaining to Jesus as the incarnate Son of God who gave himself as a ransom was revealed at its appointed time. As Calvin puts, in order that this grace might be revealed at the appointed time. Now, why was this the appointed time? We don't fully know. But what we do know is that in God's infinite wisdom and providence, he determined that the Son of God would come at a specific point in human history to accomplish the redemption of the human race. And Paul then concludes this section by articulating that he was, in fact, appointed by Jesus himself to be a heralder of this testimony to the Gentile world, that is to all the peoples of the world, which he says in verse 7, for this, that is, for this, this testimony, this message pertaining to Jesus the mediator, I was appointed a preacher or a heralder and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In other words, God has not only provided the one mediator for the human race, but he has also provided messengers to take the testimony pertaining to Jesus to the ends of the world. There is one God and one mediator, but the peoples of the world don't know this, especially in Paul's day. And Paul was appointed by God to bring this testimony to the world. Why? 
Because God wills, desires for all the peoples of the world to be saved. And this is why, as the church of Jesus Christ, we send missionaries to the nations. It's why we support the McDonald's serving in Serbia, and why we support the Gabriel serving in Ireland, and why we support Sarah serving in India. It's why we support the Villanuevas locally serving at the airport, because they are testifying to people about the one God and one mediator between God and mankind. See, God has a universal plan for the redemption of the world, and therefore his people have a responsibility to make known this redemption to all the world. And Paul was specifically appointed to this task. But the church itself has also been called to this task. And this is why the proclamation of the gospel to all the world should never be something in the background of the church's life. No matter what our culture says, we must hold to this and believe it and live by it. Because the salvation of mankind depends on it. Now to to end off, I just want to ask a few questions. For those of you who may be here, but aren't Christians, that is true followers of Jesus, lovers of Jesus, I genuinely want to ask you, have you wrestled with the claims of Christianity to such a degree That if you choose to reject Jesus, you know exactly what you're rejecting. Have you truly pondered the claim that there is one God and one mediator between God and man and what that means for you if that's true? Listen, you may think this is all a bunch of lies, made up nonsense, but look at the language of the Apostle Paul. He's doing all that he can to convey that what he's saying is not lies, but the truth, right? He says, I am telling the truth. I am not lying. He's making a claim and understand this. He spent the rest of his life proclaiming this, which led to his own death. So before you dismiss Christianity, I challenge you to seriously wrestle with whether or not the claims of Christianity are reliable and are true and what that might mean for your life. Now, to those of us who are professing Christians, do you truly believe that in Jesus alone there is salvation? And you, may be, you may be shocked that I would ask that. Well, it's important to ask that question. Because in our pluralistic society, more and more professing Christians tend to see Christianity as just one of the many options. And if there's one area where we may be tempted to compromise, it may be the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And so my plea to you as one of your pastors is hold fast to this truth and let it shape us as a church so that we might have a universal concern for all the world, and that God might even raise up men and women in our own church to take the gospel to the nations, just as he did so with the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your mercy, you have revealed to us the knowledge of the truth. We did not find it. We did not seek for it. We did not deserve it. We are not any more worthy than any other person. 
but because of your mercy, you reveal to us the wonder of Jesus Christ, our mediator, the ransom for all. And I pray, Lord, that that truth would never grow dull in our hearts, but that we would continue to marvel day by day that in Jesus Christ there is salvation, and you have bestowed that salvation upon us by the gift of your Spirit. Help us to live for you and to share the same concern for the world that you have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.